the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, 93.9 FM, Portland, 820 AM. The Word in Seattle, covering the Pacific Northwest, Washington, and beyond. Today we'll have a conversation with Elisa J. Akins, rather. She's the author of The Gift of the Outsider, What Living in the Margins Teaches Us About Faith. She'll be joining us later this hour. We'll also wind our way through some of the day's headlines. Among them, Idalia is strengthened to a Category 2 storm with 100-mile-per-hour winds this afternoon as it was barreling toward the Florida Gulf Coast. Multiple counties there are under a state of emergency and residents living in vulnerable areas. They're being warned to pack up and leave. In fact, the governor, Ron DeSantis, he warned residents in the impacted areas to leave immediately. If you don't, we can't help you until the storm has passed. Uh, as the governor spoke, Idalia was about 190 miles southwest of Tampa, 300 miles south of Tallahassee. So keep our... Uh, Friends and neighbors in Florida in our prayers as the storm approaches. Well, taking a look at some of the uh, the headlines, a court dismissed female sorority members anti-trans lawsuit. A federal judge dismissed a lawsuit raised by the University of Wyoming members of the sorority Kappa Kappa Gamma. They wanted to revoke membership of a male transgender student, or at least by uh, profession, not so much by anything else. Anyway, uh, the uh, students uh, in the uh, girls, uh, the girls student organization wanted to remove the male member. The sorority members claimed that the man in question engaged in unacceptable behaviors like voyeuristically peeping on them while they were in intimate situations. And at least one occasion, there was a visible response to their proximity. Furthermore, he never really attempted to live or behave like a woman other than occasionally wearing women's clothing. The judge ruled that since the sorority is a private national organization, the court has no position to usurp its bylaws. At issue is whether the members of the University of Wyoming chapter of that sorority have the right to reject the national organization's decision to allow transgender identifying individuals. The court says they do not. A California school board president is facing backlash for calling Christ-centered parents to get involved in decisions about their kids' curriculum. School board trustee Julia Levens-Hub of the Rockland Unified School District posted on Facebook Friday calling for Christ-centered and family-focused parents to get involved in decision-making by joining an advisory committee. The district asked parents to review and provide feedback on a proposed new science curriculum for third and fifth graders earlier in the year. However, Hub's Facebook post was met with pushback in the comment section with almost uh, 200 people responding. Some of the comments called for her resignation and claimed that she was violating the separation of church and state. The Rockland Unified School District, located in Rockland, California, presides over 17 schools and 11,405 students. The Rockland Unified School District responded, saying the post that is being uh, circulated is just one of her posts. Trustee Hupp has always been proud of the diversity of our community and hopes to see it represented in all of our communities. 
A large influential block of House Republicans is urging Speaker Kevin McCarthy to muscle in key conservative priorities in any short-term spending deal made to avoid a government shutdown. The 175-member Strong Republican Study Committee, led by Representative Kevin Hearn out of Oklahoma, sent an internal memo to lawmakers on Monday calling on them to oppose a clean spending patch uh, known as a, a continuing resolution that would extend the last year's fiscal priorities. A clean CR would simply serve as a continuation of the fiscal year 2023 omnibus monstrosity by extending Pelosi's bloated spending levels and Biden's failed policies, the memo said. Thus, as part of an effort to expeditiously establish a conservative House position on a continuing resolution, members must decide what funding level attached policy reforms and lengthy uh, length rather justify passage of temporary funding. Well, outspoken members of the uh, on the right of McCarthy's House GOP conference have criticized calls for the continuing resolution, panning it as an extension of the Democrat-controlled Congress priorities packaged in a mammoth um, uh, omnibus spending bill. When the House returns in September, because they're not in session, Congress will have just three weeks before the discretionary government funding expires. Leaders in both the House and the Senate have suggested a continuing resolution would be needed to avoid a shutdown. The RSC memo comes after a similar push by the hardline right House Freedom Caucus, also opposing a clean continuing resolution. Uh, They're weary of the repeating the uh, final debt limit deals passage, which got more Democratic than Republican votes in both chambers, despite getting a majority of House Republicans as well. California Attorney General Rob Bonta on Monday announced a lawsuit against the Chino Valley Unified School District, Board of Education to immediately halt the enforcement of their mandatory gender identity disclosure policy. The move came after other Central California school districts, Temecula Valley Unified School District, Marietta Valley Unified School District and Chino Valley United uh, Unified School District passed parental notification policies. America's first legal uh, two uh, attorneys recently filed a lawsuit against Washington Governor Jay Inslee to block enforcement of Senate Bill 5599, which allows shelters to provide sex transition services without notice to or consent from the child's parents. Well, the new law permits shelters in the state of Washington to take in minor children and assist them in transitioning to a different gender, which could include chemical sterilization and genital mutilation, all without the consent or knowledge of their parents. Under Washington's previous law, a shelter would be required to contact the parents at least within 72 hours of the child's appearance at the shelter, and the notification would include a description of the child's physical and emotional condition and circumstances surrounding the contact with the shelter. The only exception to that rule was if there were compelling reasons not to notify the parents, which were limited to circumstances that indicated that notifying the parent will subject the minor to abuse or neglect. Where such compelling circumstances exist, the shelter would have to notify the Department of Children, Youth and Families, who would then have an obligation to notify the parents of the report within three days of receiving it. But now the law expands the definition of compelling reasons and excludes parental notification when a minor child is seeking or receiving protected health care services, which include gender transition treatments. Further, a recently amended companion law uh, relieves the Department of Children, Youth and Families from notifying the parents when the report from the shelter involves gender transition treatment, requiring instead that they offer to the child the options of family reunification services and referrals for medical treatment. 
In other words, Washington state has created a legal regime where the state can hide from parents the location of their child if he or she is receiving experimental gender transition treatment and help facilitate the process. That is, in essence, state-sanctioned kidnapping. It's also blatantly unconstitutional. It's now being challenged. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, Alicia J. Akins. She's the author of The Gift of the Outsider, What Living in the Margins Teaches Us About Faith. We're ready to learn. Alicia will join us in our next couple of segments. Well, providing vision to the blind and hearing to the deaf could become possible with a breakthrough AI-powered surgical procedure that could even make mind reading a reality. That's according to a California neuroscientist. Ann Johnson, a Canadian teacher who lost her ability to talk after a stroke, left her paralyzed in 2005. She was able to speak through a cloned version of her voice after undergoing a surgery that connected her brain to artificial intelligence. The procedure involved fixing over 250 electrodes to Johnson's brain and connecting those to an array of computers through a port on the back of her head. Well, those in turn translated her brain activity into English using an AI generated avatar that spoke on her behalf. Well, the team of scientists and the University of California, Berkeley, published a study last week demonstrating how to translate electronic brain signals into spoken language and facial expressions. Well, the research is going to have profound implications for medicine and thinking about how the human brain works, the California neuroscientist says. It will also have a lot of important ethical implications around the privacy and more. Well, that's the short list as far as ethical implications. We'll continue to follow the technology. The Native Americans who are leading a viral petition demanding the Washington commanders, as they're now known, reclaim their historic Redskins name, bristled with anger and resolve after a team of representatives call their organization a fake group. We are not a fake group. We're a tribal enrolled members from tribes across the United States. Eunice Davidson, co-founder and president of the nonprofit Native American Guardians Association, headquartered in North Dakota. Well, Davidson called herself full-blooded Dakota Sioux. Uh, the organization generated nationwide headlines this summer with its petition to bring the Redskins back to the NFL. The effort now has some 128,000 signatures as of yesterday. The Taliban have doubled down with its extreme rule over Afghanistan since the withdrawal of U.S. forces almost two years ago. But a national resistance movement emerged immediately after with the hope of ending the Islamic regime in Kabul. The Taliban's growing repression, contrary to their assurances after seizing power in August of 21, hasn't stopped the National Resistance Front or NRF from continuing operations against Taliban rule. These are some courageous people. The National Resistance Front remains the most formidable Afghan resistance unit fighting the Taliban and its leaders have vowed to continue the fight even after the loss of its uh, rear admiral, uh, its rear base rather, in the uh, Panjshir Valley, which the Taliban recaptured. Well, currently the Taliban finds itself entangled in multiple internal conflicts. Among these uh, challenges, the Taliban likely views the NRF as a particularly substantial threat given its recognition and inclusion of notable political figures shortly after taking power in September of 2021. The opposition group has been in a two-year campaign to gain greater international recognition and support for their efforts to fight the Taliban. 
Uh, they have uh, stepped up their political activity, gathering uh, two conferences in Australia and Tajikistan among various opposition groups and members of the Afghan diaspora in hopes of organizing a unified political opposition in outlining a democratic alternative for Afghanistan's future. So far, the calls for greater international support, particularly from the United States, have fallen on deaf ears. A new Associated Press uh, Center for Public Affairs uh, research survey found Republicans and Democrats are in agreement over one belief about President Biden. He's far too old to be an effective leader in a second term. That's what 77 percent of respondents said regarding the 80 year old uh, commander in chief, a belief 89 percent of Republicans and 69 percent of Democrats shared. And while former President Trump is only a few years younger, voters were less concerned about his age. They were concerned, however, about his character. Sixty six percent said they would support age limits for presidential candidates, according to the survey. And sixty eight percent would support age limits for Congress. Sixty seven percent would support a mandatory retirement age for justices. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley has proposed mental competency tests for lawmakers over the age of 75. Hawaiian Electric said Monday that its power lines weren't responsible for the wildfire that destroyed the town of Lahaina, killing at least 115 people and blamed Maui County firefighters for an inadequate response. Well, the company made the statements in a public response to a lawsuit filed last week by Maui County that blamed Hawaiian Electric, the local electric utility known as HECO or HECO for the blaze, and sought damages for costs the local government has incurred. Well, the utility said power lines toppled by high winds likely caused the morning brush fire in Lahaina, but electricity had been off for hours when a second fire occurred that afternoon. Hawaiian Electric uh, uh, Electric's stock rather soared more than 40 percent on Monday. Hawaiian Electric said uh, power lines appear to have caused the brush fire that started at 630 a.m. local time in the historic town. A small fire near the uh, downed poles spread into a field near Lahaina uh, Intermediate School. The Maui County Fire Department responded to the morning fire and declared that it had been extinguished, according to the company's account of events leading up to the wildfires. So that dispute and clarification will continue. A Florida sheriff addressed the reason for violent actions in the Florida communities. Spencer Brown said that in the wake of a shooting at a Jacksonville, Florida Dollar General on Saturday, Sheriff Waters uh, delivered an important reminder about what or who specifically is to blame for the tragic loss of life. The story is always about guns, the sheriff commented at a press conference of media coverage following the weekend shooting. Rather than the gun being the root of the problem, however, Waters argued, people are bad. Jacksonville Sheriff, the story is always uh, a bit off. The problem is the individual, he went on to say. Well, a majority of Oregon residents support repealing a law that decriminalized hard drugs within the state, the reversal of the a position's passage after three years, a poll commissioned by the Foundation for Drug Policy Solutions surveyed registered Oregon voters to measure public attitude toward Measure 110, a voter passed measure in 2020 that decriminalized the possession of hard drugs in favor of expanding addiction treatment options as funded by the state's cannabis tax. Well, the measure decriminalized small amounts of drugs such as heroin and other street drugs shortly before fentanyl burst onto the scene as a highly addictive and dangerous synthetic opiate alternative. 56% of respondents said that they wanted to see the measure repealed completely. 
while 45 percent said the measure should be left as is. Voters also supported repealing parts of the measure to bring back penalties for possessing small amounts of drugs. And of course, the drug treatment programs that were also a part of that measure, which, by the way, I opposed at the time it was on Oregon's ballot, never materialized. It's a much longer story. By the way, we'll be covering more on that in the uh, uh, last half hour of the program that's only heard in the Portland area. You can go to my podcast at the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page for more um, information on uh, what's happening here in Oregon on that. Well, let's see. The Taliban has stopped female students from traveling to Dubai to study. It's not much of a surprise. That's who the Taliban is. Well, after they uh, shut universities for women, uh, the only hope was to get a scholarship which would help um, Students study abroad. One 20-year-old Afghan student uh, declared that um, she changed her name for her own safety. The Taliban had cracked down hard on women who opposed them. She says she kept studying even though there was little chance of her attending university in her homeland. Then she was granted a scholarship to study at the University of Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. From the Emirati billionaire businessman Sheikh Ahmed Al-Habtur. Well, the scholarship for Afghan women were... Uh, scholarships, rather, were announced in December of last year after the Taliban banned women from university. The BBC understands a total of 100 Afghan women have been successfully gaining these scholarships. Some students living abroad have already traveled to Dubai. This particular woman is one of at least 60 girls uh, who were turned away from the airport. Photos seen by the BBC show young girls wearing black hijabs and headscarves standing next to their luggage in a state of shock and devastation. The Taliban has banned solo travel for women and only allow them to go abroad with their husbands or a related male companion, such as a brother, uncle or father, known as a mahram, a male escort. But even this is not enough. Uh, Karine Jean-Pierre struggled to articulate uh, the president's message to these girls in Afghanistan who can no longer attend school after the Taliban takeover. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, a conversation with Elisa J. Akins, author of The Gift of the Outsider. We'll talk about who the outsider is and how they're a gift when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in her second book, my next guest, author of The Gift of the Outsider, What Living... In the Margins teaches us about faith, author Alicia J. Akins. She takes readers on a journey of what it means to be an outsider. Well, the book uh, celebrates the blessings found in unbelonging and encourages Christians of all backgrounds to love and listen to their community's outcasts. She looks at four categories of gifts that encapsulate the outsider's experience, and readers will gain understanding of what it means to be discarded and how Jesus calls us to grow in both understanding and help. For those who are unseen or misunderstood, it is a blessed revelation of those who are squarely on the inside uh, and and uh, give some insight for those who themselves are on the outside. Well, my next guest is uh, Alicia J. Aiken. She is the author who finds herself at home both nowhere and anywhere. Her interests how, uh, in how differences can be our strength have taken her across the globe. And after living and working in Asia for five years, she considers it a second home. She's a master's student at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and has previously published Invitations to Abundance, also with Harvest House. She joins us now to talk about her latest, her second book, The Gift of the Outsider. And uh, just a pleasure to have you with us. Alicia Atkins, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you for having me. You write in the introduction of the book, this book has emerged from a patchwork of joy and sorrow sewn together over the years as I have processed rather what it means to be different. What does it mean to be an outsider? And and, uh, of course, the book focuses on the gift of the outsider and those who perhaps don't belong. Explain what an outsider is for the purposes of your book. Yeah. So for the purposes of my book, I look at a very large swath of people who might find themselves on the outside of any majority group within the church. So I am talking about people who are in the church, um, but that could be people with chronic illnesses. It could be people who are ethnic minorities. It could be people who, um, in the case of persecuted Christians, are religious minorities in their country and what we as people who are part of the majority religion in the U.S. could learn from them. Um, so it's a very broad range. Uh, it includes people who are single, people who are hurting or grieving, people um, who maybe just are awkward and more introverted and find themselves on the outside. Now, this book is written for those who are not on the outside, primarily to recognize the value of those who uh, are outsiders. Uh, In the body of Christ, we're told that we are connected to one another, that we are members of a single body. And it may be difficult to recognize that there are some among us who don't necessarily feel included or involved. How do we recognize Mm -hmm. as part of that Uh, That majority, if you will, how do we recognize those who would be categorized as outsiders by their own definition, feeling a little less than um, the the majority, if you will? I think that developing really good listening skills is one way to see um, and get a pulse for who is feeling like they're on the outside, but also just taking a step back from um, your normal schedule of you go into church, you see your friends, you hit up the people that you normally see, taking a step back and looking to see who's by themselves, who's not participating fully, who is missing here, um, who was here before, or um, who might be going through something difficult right now. So I think um, having open eyes and having Mm -hmm. open ears is able to um, being able to perceive who might be on the outside in the groups that we're in. The truth is most of us feel a a bit uncomfortable. We tend to gravitate to people that we know. We tend to sit in the same spot uh, because Mm -hmm. we feel awkward and we don't want to risk being an outsider. So we rush to what's familiar. But in the process, as you describe in the book, we often leave those behind who don't have the option of racing to a group that they might feel somewhat attached to. How do we develop uh, the ability to see and hear Uh, those among us who are part of the body of Christ, but may not feel like they're part of the body of Christ. Yeah. So just like a concrete example, sometimes I show up to church early and I look to see who's sitting by themselves. And I guess maybe this works a little bit easier because I'm maybe less introverted, but I will try and connect those people to other people Or when there are people who are hurting, um, who I'm aware of, maybe they're um, experiencing infertility and that's something that they feel is a really personal, private thing that disconnects them from 
a larger church that's oriented around families, um, I sort of keep an ear out uh, for other people who might be having similar issues and see, hey, would you feel comfortable with me connecting you with someone else who's going through a similar experience, if that would be helpful? Um, So I think really trying to be an advocate for and being intentional about um, seeking out people who might be on the outside rather than expecting them to come to you or to reveal themselves mm-hmm. is one way to um, take an active role in identifying and caring well for those who are on the outside. I was reminded as I uh, read the book of a young woman from a church I attended that was had such a servant's heart. She was always there to to take up the slack, to to lead in some way. Uh, she was somewhat socially awkward, but she was always there. She was sweet and kind and generous with her time, but she was never really embraced by the congregation. And she was sort of overlooked by the leaders who were happy mm-hmm. to uh, to uh, accept her service, but weren't really interested in her as an individual. And I was reminded mm-hmm. of her as an outsider. She was such an important part of the church, and yet there was very little connection with members of the church. And it seems to me that sometimes we are blinded to what's what's happening because we are uh, distracted by our own interests or the people that we know. And this is really a call for us to uh, to respond in a way that I think is honoring to Christ and certainly the way he would respond to the crowds that he found himself in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, And I think that that takes you know, in addition to taking initiative and things like that, really reevaluating the things that you value um, and how that impacts uh, who you spend time with and the gifts that you prioritize in the church is so important. You begin the book with the question, answering the question, who is an outsider? Then you examine four categories of gifts. Can you explain what those four categories are and what they mean in terms of helping us to move more freely within the body of Christ among those who would otherwise be considered outsiders? Absolutely. So the four gifts that I talk about in this book are gifts of sight, gifts of dependence, gifts of freedom, and gifts of suffering. And I know that that last one might be a hard one to swallow because nobody considers suffering a gift, but I'll get into more uh, why that is actually a gift to the church. The gifts of sight are um, things that are general that people who are on the outside of a group might have. Like they may be able to see the dynamics um, and the culture of the inside of the group more clearly because they're coming from outside of the group. They may be able to name things that other people only experience sort of in the background um, and assume is true for everyone. They also are bringing their own perspective from the background that they're bringing to the group. And they're able to see other people who are on the outside as well and identify um, other people who may be in the margins, even if it's not being in the margins for the same reason. Mm -hmm. The gifts of dependence uh, look at um, things that uh, require individuals to rely on their community or to rely on God. So um, sometimes people who have chronic illnesses or people who, for example, I put in this um, section, people who are single have needs that maybe they aren't able to meet on their own. And they, um, the way that they reach out to their community and are vulnerable in expressing their needs reminds all of us that we are interconnected and that we need each other and that we 
are often God's answer to prayer for each other. Um, Gifts of freedom is what it looks like to not be attached to those things that um, we just take for granted, like money and power and privilege and um, comfort. And what not being uh, wedded to those things um, allows us to do. Like if, if I'm comfortable being uncomfortable, then I can do those things like you're talking about, like reaching out and being okay, being the awkward one, initiating a new conversation or sitting in awkward silence or any number of other things that someone who can't bear being uncomfortable might not feel um, at home in. And then finally, gifts of suffering. I'll tell you what, I'm going to I'm going to take a quick break here. We'll return with the gifts of suffering in just a few moments. Again, we're talking with Alicia Akins. She is the author of The Gift of the Outsider. And we'll be back in just a few moments. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book, The Gift of the Outsider, What Living in the Margins Teaches Us About Faith. My guest is Alicia. I've called you Akins, Akins, everything known to man. What is the correct pronunciation of your last name? It's Akins. I will say that from from this point forward. I apologize. (laughs) Just before the break, we were talking about um, the uh, four categories of gifts. You talked about sight, dependence, freedom, but we had to take a break right before suffering. And perhaps that was providential because that's perhaps the one that we uh, like the least uh, and understand the least. Um, talk about the gift of suffering. Sure. The gifts of suffering um, are gifts that help grow our ability to understand what it means to endure in Christ. Um, They're gifts that help us understand what it means to lament and lament well and make space in our worship and in our um, our worship of God communally and individually um, of lament. And it um, is a gift that keeps us aware of injustice um, in our midst, potentially. Um, And so those are kind of things that Christians need to be aware of as they um, go through life with God. Um, And so those are the um, gifts that people who experience um, suffering can bring to those who perhaps haven't. It it just reminds me that we have such a tremendous resource in the, the body of Christ in that we are all so different in so many ways. And when we, uh, neglect to include all of us in this great enterprise uh, that we've we've missed out. We we are lacking if we are not embracing all of the outsiders, if you will. And for the outsider, what do you say to them as they hope to be embraced but feel misunderstood? What do they gain when uh, we respond in a way that's um, biblical to all in the body? Well, one thing that outsiders get when we respond to them well is a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. Uh, When they don't get that, um, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, but I think being as outsiders, we are able to understand a part of um, Jesus's story. He was an outsider as well. um, And we know that he can empathize with us. um, And so we have a friend uh, in him in our um, identity as outsiders. Um, but then we also get to know that, you know, in First Corinthians 12, Paul says that 
the parts that seem to be weaker are really indispensable. And later he says that God has given greater honor to parts that lacked it. And so I really hope my heart is that people who are on the outside, regardless of whether their peers and those around them see their value, they know that God has given them special value to their church. Yeah, yeah. You end each chapter with uh, reflection questions to really help make it practical so that we don't just read and, and gain some academic understanding, but we learn to understand ourselves perhaps a bit better in areas that we're not responding as we ought and how to respond correctly. Uh, talk a little bit about how important it is for us to apply what uh, the scripture teaches and what your book uh, focuses on in order to honor Christ and to embrace all that is the body of Christ. Absolutely. So one of the things that I think is really critical to um, having a heart that's more aware of outsiders is self-reflection. And that's why I wanted to end each chapter with questions. And you can go through them by yourself, or you can go through them with other people in a small group setting or with friends. Um, But it's really important to take time not just to reflect on your own experience um, and your community and take, you know, sort of the temperature of where things stand in terms of who's on the inside and who's on the outside. But it's also really important to connect this back to God's bigger picture, how he's arranged the body and his vision for the church and for the body of Christ. For those who uh, believe themselves to be unseen and misunderstood, is there is there a word to them if the people with whom they are in fellowship with in the church are not seeing them or are not uh, extending the the uh, love of Christ and the effort as they ought. What do you say to the outsider? Do they move on? Uh, do they make the effort to initiate? What do you say to the outsider who uh, is at, I would say, some disadvantage? I think in part it depends on the outsider and their experience. But I'd say, you know, if you have done all that you can and you have prayed um, and I the Lord, is this where I should continue to serve? And so, um, and, um, you know, put down roots and um, make this place my home, or is there somewhere else that I can go? I think you should act on um, where the Lord leads you. But I do talk about how um, sticking it out maybe a little bit longer than you might initially be tempted to isn't always a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it takes the uh, breakthroughs in those relationships. Um, But I think that, you know, the Lord alone can tell someone whether or not it's time to move on or whether or not they should stay. You describe yourself as both an insider and outsider at different times in your uh, journey. Um, How do you relate to being in both positions, depending on where you are? As I mentioned earlier, you lived in Asia for a period of time. I imagine there were seasons when you felt an outsider. How do you relate um, your experience to those who are both in or outside uh, and want to really honor Christ and to uh, recognize and fellowship with one another in a way that reflects his desire? Yeah, so I'm on the diaconate at my church, and in a way, as a leader, that makes me an insider. Um, But I'm also a person of color in a majority white church, and I'm uh, the only black person on the diaconate. Um, And so that makes me an outsider among insiders, but I'm also an insider. And so I think about, you know, my 
obligation as an outsider to speak on behalf of other outsiders and to continue to point people's um, eyes to pockets of the congregation that we might be missing and overlooking in conversations. And so that's one kind of thing. But simply even the fact that this book exists is uh, the fruit of years overseas, living in China, living um, across Asia, and realizing and seeing people on the margins and being um, inspired by how they live their lives of faith in the face of persecution, being outnumbered by people who don't believe um, in the Lord. And so I think just seeing people live faithfully as outsiders is such an inspiration to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I appreciate so much your putting into words your book that we can read and consider where we stand and whether or not we are recognizing those that God has called us to fellowship with in the body of Christ. The book, again, is called The Gift of the Outsider, What Living in the Margins Teaches Us About Faith. Alicia Akins, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'm reminded, as she made a reference earlier to 1 Corinthians 12, 21 through 26, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body. Let me just repeat that. God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If other members, if one member is honored, all rejoice together. First Corinthians 12, 21 through 26. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Then we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 93.9 KPDQ and 820 The Word in Seattle. I want to continue to take a look at some of the top stories of the last couple of days. Maori, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez suspended his Republican presidential bid. Uh, the Miami uh, mayor announced on Tuesday afternoon that he will be suspending his bid for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. While I have decided to suspend my campaign for president, my commitment to making uh, this a better nation for every American remains, he says in a public statement released on the social media platform X. I will continue to amplify the voices of the Hispanic community, the fastest growing voting group in our country. The left has taken Hispanics for granted as far uh, for far too long, and it is no surprise that so many are finding a home in America's conservative movement, end quote. Well, he failed to qualify for the first GOP debate in uh, late August at the time. He told CNN that he would withdraw his candidacy if he did not meet that requirement outlined by the Republican National Committee to get on stage. So he did just that, but has vowed to keep his hand in to try to influence the direction the nation is taking. Well, over 100 former clerks of the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas wrote an open letter defending him after recent news articles accused him of bending court ethics, saying that his integrity is unimpeachable and his independence is unshakable. Those are both quotes. Well, as his law clerks, we offer this response. Different paths led us to our year with Justice Thomas, and we have followed different paths since. 
But along the way, we all saw with our own eyes the same thing. His integrity is unimpeachable, the letter reads, and his independence is unshakable, deeply rooted uh, seven decades ago as that young child who walked through the door of his grandparents' house for a life forever changed, they wrote. The 112 signatories uh, on the letter include current solicitors general, general counsels, partners at litigation firms, and law professors. Three circuit court judges also signed the letter, David Strass of the Eighth Circuit, Jim Ho of the Fifth Circuit, and Allison Rushing, Fourth Circuit. The former clerks described having a front row seat at Thomas uh, Thomas at work, calling him a man of great uh, greatest intellect, of greatest faith, and of great patriotism. He is a man of unwavering principle. He welcomes the lone dissent. He is also a man of great humor and warmth and generosity. Walk the halls and you'll hear his laugh. Call and he answers, they said. We are proud to have been his clerks and to remain his friends, and we are unequivocally Uh, We unequivocally reject attacks on his integrity, his character, or his ethics, they went on to say. Meanwhile, NASCAR offers a paid diversity internship that excludes white people from applying on the basis of their race, a stipulation a constitutional lawyer says is blatantly illegal. The race car giants diversity internship program states that there are racial requirements that applicants must meet in order to be accepted. David Bernstein, a professor at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia School of Law, Uh, said that NASCAR's racially discriminatory program is blatantly illegal, noting that it would seem to violate Title VII and the 1866 Civil Rights Act. Having a 100% quota for minorities for a position is illegal, even under a very generous view of what is allowed. He went on to say, adding that a potential applicant who was unable to apply on the basis of his or her race would have legal standing to sue the company. NASCAR has two development programs, one for drivers and another for pit crew members. Both are limited to women or those from non-white racial background. We'll see if there's a challenge forthcoming. Well, just over half of the men who identify as transgender women who are imprisoned in Wisconsin have committed at least one count of sexual assault, according to documents obtained by the Heritage Foundation's Oversight Project. According to the documents, 161 men who believe they are women are housed in Wisconsin's prisons. 81 of them, or 50.3 percent, have been convicted of at least one count of sexual assault or sexual abuse. Uh, The Oversight Project points out that over half of the transgender women in Wisconsin prisons have been convicted sex of sex crimes. um, And it doesn't exactly fit the narrative that uh, those who put them there were hoping for. A judge in Missouri ruled against an effort by a pro-trans lobby and the ACLU to stop the state's ban on gender bending procedures for minors from going into effect. But as of Monday, any medical provider who violates the law may lose their license and is liable for at least $500,000 in damages from patients who sue within 15 years after receiving the procedures. Meanwhile, in Maryland, a judge ruled in favor of a Montgomery County Public Schools requirement that all students take a pro-LGBTQ class. Judge Deborah Boardman said that parents are not free to opt their children out of these classes, asserting that parents do not face any coercion to violate their sacred duty to raise their child in their faith. In other words, Boardman effectively ruled that the schools are free to indoctrinate children on any ideology they want, and the only option available to parents is to counter what the schools are teaching at home. Heidi St. John comes to mind and the uh, homeschool Organization. A recent study conducted by Belgian researchers has found that paper straws 
a widely touted eco-friendly alternative to plastic straws, contains as much a much higher concentration of toxic so-called forever chemicals or PFAS uh, compared to plastic straws. Some 90 percent of paper straws contain PFAS compared to 75 percent of plastic straws. Even 80 percent of the other green alternative bamboo straws contain PFAS. The irony here is that certain countries like Belgium and the United Kingdom and cities like New York have enacted or are seeking to ban plastic straws primarily on the basis of their PFAS content. And now it appears that the green alternative is worse for people and the environment. I have to say, I, I cannot take a paper straw. It just, it's not, it's not right. That's all I can say, people. It's just not right. Well, in yet another example of bad government producing bad policy, Chicago's new Democrat mayor, Brandon Johnson, is suing car manufacturer Kia and Hyundai for their spiking rates of car thefts in the city over the last three years. Johnson's rationale is that these auto manufacturers are making their cars too easy for criminals to steal. So it's the car maker's fault, not the thieves. Well, this is like blaming rape victims for claiming the way they dressed invited the attack. So rather than cracking down on the criminals responsible for the auto theft, Johnson is sticking it to Kia and Hyundai, which, by the way, make some of the most affordable cars. The result will be to make cars even less affordable for the poor who suffer the most when lawlessness is excused by politicians. And there you have it. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, following the Republican presidential debate, did you watch it, by the way, hosted by Fox News last week, a debate that Donald Trump conspicuously did not attend as he opted for a friendly interview with Tucker Carlson, there was a lot of social media chatter about viewership numbers. Well, the debate featured eight candidates, all polling well behind Trump, but drew 12.8 million viewers, while the viewership of the debates was far below Fox's record-setting 24 million viewers in 2015 with the Republican debate field that included Trump. It was no slouch. Meanwhile, Trump touted viewership numbers for his Carlson interview, 231 million viewers and still counting, he said. The biggest video on social media ever more than double the Super Bowl. He never leaves anything quite unsaid. Well, this views uh, uh, numbers is now about 235 million, but there is a huge caveat, according to the metric used by X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. I'm not sure when we can stop saying that, but you get the idea. Um, a view is tabulated after a mere two seconds, according to um, Mashable, a more accurate viewership number for people who watched at least two seconds of Trump's interview was 14.8 million. But who's counting? Maybe one day they'll have their own state. Well, a group of investors and entrepreneurs is seeking to buy land in Northern California with a vision toward building a new green tech friendly city. The area for this project is near Travis Air Force Base, which has some folks raising national security concerns. These security concerns are regarding foreign ownership and investment in the project. Well, tropical storm Adalia is intensifying with strength, uh, will strengthen into a major hurricane before Florida landfall this week. Burisman's Devin Archer met with then Secretary of State Kerry uh, just weeks before the Shokin uh, firing. In a bit of a twist, Joe Biden's handlers are getting nervous about Gavin Newsom's debate with Ron DeSantis in November. According to four different sources, the president's political advisors now believe that Newsom's debating DeSantis carries more risk than reward. And when you read between the lines, there's one glaring reason they don't want to see the clash take place. 
They don't want the visual of a younger, more coherent, progressive Democrat juxtaposed with Joe Biden, who can barely stay awake, much less consistently formulate sentences. Well, as the president continues to deteriorate physically and mentally, the angst within the party will only grow. Most are scared to say it right out, um, or at least right now, but very few want Biden to run again. Well, that brings uh, me to Kamala Harris, who would presumably replace Biden at the top of the ticket if he were to step aside. The vice president has been in the midst of yet another reintroduction. Newsom garnered headlines as a well-spoken leftist who no doubt start uh, uh, renewed calls for him to replace both Biden and Harris at the top of the ticket. But that debate is scheduled to take place. Three people were killed in a racially motivated shooting in Florida over the weekend. Meanwhile, the Jacksonville sheriff says guns don't cause shootings. Wicked people do. The U.S. Department of Justice is considering bringing criminal charges against Senator Bob Menendez after a lengthy corruption investigation, according to a new report. The Wall Street Journal reported that the prosecutors are expected to meet with Menendez lawyers in the next few weeks, a sign that prosecutors have developed the evidence they need to bring charges. The criminal investigation into Menendez, which first made news last October, originally centered around a New Jersey-based halal meat business, which won an exclusive worldwide contract with Egypt to certify halal exports, as numerous other firms' contracts were suddenly canceled in 2019. Well, sources told the publication that the U.S. Agriculture Department was suspicious over how the large contract was awarded to the company, which had very little experience. The Biden administration wants to drive the cost of ceiling fans up $86 million per year to save you $4 per year. And a push by the Biden administration to increase food stamp benefits to the tune of one trillion dollars could be responsible for a 15 percent rise in prices at the grocery store. That's according to a government watchdog report. The Department of Agriculture rolled out revised nutritional standards for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, in 2021 that expanded the program by 27 percent on average from pre-COVID pandemic levels. The Foundation for Government Accountability found. Well, overall spending on the program more than doubled between 2019 and 2022, going from $4.5 billion in 2019 to $11 billion in 2022. A study released Thursday by the Government Accountability Group shows the spending hit $8.6 billion in March of this year, despite some emergency allotments having expired and is expected to rise by 5.8% over the course of this year. Well, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell warned on Friday that additional rate increases might be required to put inflation on a convincing path to the central bank's 2% target. And although inflation has moved down from its peak, a welcome development, it remains too high. Powell said his, in his keynote address at the Kansas City Fed's annual conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, we are prepared to raise rates further if appropriate and intend to hold policy at a restrictive level until we are confident that inflation is moving su- sustainably down toward our objective. And Joe the Plumber, as he came to be known, famously known for confronting Obama over taxes, has died at 49. Well, speaking of resting in peace, so goes family entertainment. For the first time in recent memory, Hollywood will release no G-rated movies this year. The family-friendly rating, long considered a staple production for Hollywood, has steadily declined over the last decade, increasingly being replaced by PG fare. For example, the Little Mermaid remake this year was rated PG, as is the new animated children's movie Paw Patrol 2. 
And this is this indicative of a death of family friendly movies being produced by Hollywood or is it an increased sensitivity to potentially offensive material? We'll just have to wait and see. National Archives has confirmed the existence of 5,400 emails and records containing alleged Vice President Biden pseudonyms. And President Joe Biden made a false claim on Monday when he said that he literally, in quotes, convinced former Dixiecrat Senator Strom Thurmond to vote for the Civil Rights Act. The president made his outlandish claim while speaking on the 60th anniversary of the founding of the Civil Rights Legal Group, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Strom Thurmond, who switched to the Republican Party after years as a Democrat, voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964 before Joe Biden had entered politics, being that he was just 21 at the time. Well, Thurmond not only voted against the Civil Rights Act of 1964, he also holds the record for the longest ever filibuster opposing the Civil Rights Act of 1957. A White House spokesperson later said the president was, well, instrumental in getting Thurmond's vote for the Voting Rights Act in 1980, whatever the president meant, it represents yet another serious gaffe in his long string of serious gaffes, some more serious than others. Well, the president is being slammed for taking credit for reopening schools and a coalition of sixteen hundred and nine scientists from around the world have signed a declaration stating there is no climate emergency and that they strongly oppose the harmful and unrealistic net zero CO2 policy being pushed across the globe. The declaration does not deny the harmful effects of greenhouse gases, but instead challenges the hysteria brought about by the narrative of imminent doom. I've heard that my whole life. Imminent doom. The Associated Press coverage of the courts and climate is being bankrolled by dozens of left wing foundations calling into question the reporting. Well, on this day in history, uh, 2005, rather, Hurricane Katrina Slams into the U.S. Gulf Coast, destroying beachfront towns in Mississippi and Louisiana, displacing a million people and killing more than 1,800. Let's pray for the uh, people in Florida who are facing a similar challenge. 1842, the Treaty of Nanking is signed, ending the Opium Wards and ceding the island of Hong Kong to Britain. 1862, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing begins operations at the United States Treasury. 1944, approximately 15,000 American troops of the 28th Infantry Division marched down the Champs-Élysées in Paris as the French capital celebrates its liberation from the Nazis. Well, we are out of time for our Seattle listeners. Have a great night. Want to thank our producer in Seattle, Pedro Bartz. He's also the engineer in Seattle. Have a great night. Portland, stick around. There's more to come. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Oregon's attempt at drug decriminalization has been an unmitigated disaster. That's what Ben West, a commissioner in Clackamas County, said. He said people are dying on our streets and voters have been bamboozled. Well, West is a commissioner, as I mentioned, in Clackamas County. He pushed his colleagues to do something about it during a June 7th board meeting. He acknowledged, as have many of us, that Clackamas County couldn't um, on its own turn back Measure 110, approved by nearly 60 percent of Oregon voters in 2020. But they weren't helpless either. We can advocate. We can go to our voters. We can use our bully pulpit, he said. We can bring other counties from local government to our side. Well, his colleagues on the commission agreed uh, with his concerns. Well, Measure 110, if you recall, has turned Oregon into the wild, wild west of drug abuse. 
That's another observation from Commissioner Mark Scholl. Uh, Board Chair Tootie Smith said voters had been the victims of a bait and switch. They'd been promised an intense focus on treatment and recovery that is yet to be delivered. Well, the board voted three to one that day to send uh, to spend rather up to eighty thousand dollars to pose two questions to Clackamas voters during next May's presidential primary. Should state lawmakers representing Clackamas County introduce and pass legislation repealing Measure 110? And should Governor Tina Kotek call a special session to address the impacts of drug decriminalization on crime and homelessness? Two questions, Clackamas County. Well, technically, the ballot measure is toothless. Clackamas County voters can't force state lawmakers to take drastic action. But Clackamas commissioners intend to encourage other Oregon counties to follow their lead and pose the same or similar questions to their own voters, part of a fledgling effort to build a statewide consensus to force the legislature's hand. Well, the approval of the ballot language is notable in part because of where it's occurring. Clackamas County is not a small Republican backwater in rural Oregon. It's one of the three heavily populated counties that make up the Portland metro area. In 2020, about 54 percent of Clackamas County voters cast ballots for Joe Biden. About the same percentage of Clackamas voters backed the radical drug decriminalization experiment in that same election. But over the last few years, as drug overdose deaths have skyrocketed in the state, as squalid homeless camps have proliferated in Portland and beyond, and as the uh, treatment and recovery options Oregonians thought were being, uh, they were voting on failed to materialize, Many residents have changed their views, and increasingly they're saying that drug decriminalization hasn't worked. And many believe that um, a nibbling around the edges won't be enough to reverse the damage. Well, says one uh, downtown Portland restaurant owner, I do think there are a lot of people like me, left of center, who are realizing it was a mistake. Now, some of us thought it was a mistake when it was on the ballot, but I'm glad to know that there are others who now recognize it is uh, just that it could turn back time and repeal measure 110 today. I would do it, she said. Well, critics of the measure who spoke to National Review, who covered the issue recently, said they believe most Oregonians, even in uber progressive Portland, are coming to a similar realization. Despite their good intentions, drug decriminalization has had a devastating impact on the region. An April poll found that more than 60 percent of respondents believe that the passage of Measure 110 has contributed to the increasing number of drug overdoses in the state and that it's worsened the homelessness crisis. A similar percentage, including a majority of Democrats, supported amending the law to reinstitute some criminal punishment for illegal drug users. Well, that's mildly encouraging. It's significant. Um, Kevin Dahlgren, a Portland drug counselor, homelessness consultant and Measure 110 opponent, said, I really do feel like the needle has moved. No pun intended. West, the Clackamas commissioner, is also a nurse. He's had a front row seat to the horrors that have accompanied the decriminalization of drugs in the state. He told his colleagues in June that he is tired of seeing patients and people dying on our streets. Well, last year, Portland police investigated a record number of drug overdose deaths in the city. This year, they topped that record in early August. Critics have also charged proponents of drug decriminalization and so-called harm reduction of enabling drug users. Over the summer, the health department in Multnomah County, that includes most of Portland, drew scorn after it was revealed that they were planning to provide drug addicts with smoking supplies and with additional education materials about how to ignite and ingest drugs and, uh, well, another way. 
the neighborhood I grew up in, uh, Commissioner West said, uh, it, it literally changed quickly from a livable, beautiful, funky, artsy city to being a hollow, dystopian nightmare. He said he could no longer just sit idly by and step over basically people killing themselves on the street and pretend this is a new norm. Well, most of us have thought this is the new norm. Is anybody listening who has the authority to make a difference? Well, Measure 110, otherwise known as the Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act, promised Oregonians a new progressive approach to addressing addiction in the state. Oregonians suffering from substance abuse disorders need adequate access to recovery services, peer support, and stable housing. The act read, they need treatment through a humane, cost-effective health approach, not to be treated like criminals, it said. Well, the act promised to prioritize harm reduction and to decriminalize user amounts of street drugs, including hard drugs such as heroin and methamphetamines. Offenses would be punishable with a citation and a $100 fine, which could be dismissed if the offender called a treatment referral hotline and completed a health assessment. No more, just a health assessment. Money from the state's marijuana tax would be redirected to recovery services. It all sounded really good and oh, so progressive. Well, proponents of the uh, November 2020 ballot measure led by George Soros funded Drug Policy Alliance spent millions promoting it. They swamped their underfunded opponents. The measure passed overwhelmingly, garnering 58.5 percent of the vote statewide and winning majorities in 17 of the state's 36 counties, including Clackamas. While progressive reformers saw the win in Oregon as a first strike and a bigger national push to decriminalize drugs. The Soros-backed Drug Policy Alliance is now pushing legislation to eliminate federal penalties for drug possession, according to media reports. West said, again, the commissioner, I think the uh, voters were sold a bill of goods from a radical special interest group back east. He added that he believes Oregon was specifically targeted because of its size and its political demographics. Well, there are reasons to believe that Oregon wasn't prepared for what was to come. While voters were considering decriminalizing drugs, the state ranked near the top of the nation and the percent of its population 12 and older that already had an illicit drug use disorder and at the bottom for getting treatment for people who needed it. Recently, Oregon topped the nation in the percent of its population that misuses prescription opioids and uses meth and was third in the nation for the percent of its population that had a serious mental illness in the past year. According to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health Report, it was released in December of 21. Well, measured uh, 110 language, it acknowledged that Oregon ranks nearly last out of 50 states to access in access to treatment and the waiting list to get treatment are too long. And despite the acknowledgement, there's there was nothing in the language of the act to hold off the drug decriminalization until the state sufficiently built up its treatment capacity. And once the measure was passed, the marijuana tax money that was supposed to fund recovery services was slow to be dispensed. An audit released by the Secretary of State's office in January found that the grant application process was inefficient and inconsistent, and people in charge of it lacked experience in grant making and implementing a statewide program. We didn't have that infrastructure at all, uh, West went on to say, and the elected leaders in this state have chosen not to invest in those things, despite what was promised. One drug counselor, Mr. Dahlgren, I quoted a moment ago, 
He's also a homeless consultant. He's a critic of what he calls the homeless industrial complex, which he says is overly focused on anti-capitalism and dumping massive sums of money into building affordable housing. He said that basic and often more important steps, such as homeless outreach and building more detox facilities, have been neglected. If I were king for a day, he said, I would start with at least tripling the amount of detox facilities we have, if not more, to offer detox immediately to people ready for change. And that means always having open beds. Well, what's happening here in Oregon clearly is not working. We'll continue to take a look at not only what's um, being done, but what some are proposing be done in the future. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking about the fact that Oregonians are turning against drug decriminalization, calling it a mistake. We've got record ODs and the dystopian nightmare continues. Well, in Clackamas County, the commission there have decided they want to do something about it. Now, they don't have a lot of teeth in their effort, but they do hope to influence others across the state to reconsider the position Oregon has taken and held now for nearly two years. When Oregon voters decriminalized drug real three years, uh, drugs in 2020, few likely understood the scope of the fentanyl crisis that was in the process of overwhelming the nation, infecting the drug supply and even hooking drug users who had no interest in the powerful synthetic opioid. Well, now with few options to uh, coerce users into treatment, data show that Oregon has been disproportionately harmed by the drug. Last year, 1,365 people died of a drug overdose in Oregon, more than double the 610 such deaths in 2019, according to the National Center for Health Statistics data. We're talking about somebody's son, daughter, a sister, a brother, a cousin, a grandson. Nationally, overdose deaths increased by about a third during that same period. In Portland, overdose deaths are similarly skyrocketing, according to Police Bureau data. Last year, the city shattered its record for drug overdose deaths with 159 up from 135 in 21 and 87 in the year 2020. The Bureau reported so far this year, the Portland Police Bureau told National Review that as of the 10th of this month, just a couple of weeks ago, its narcotics unit had already received 178 suspected overdose death notifications, blowing past last year's record with about five months left to go. Media reports are filled with scenes of drugged out people passing out in doorways or roaming downtown like zombies, babbling to themselves and pushing around carts filled with junk. And as for the citations and the $100 fines approved by Measure 110, law enforcement officers across the state have issued thousands of them, but fewer than 200 people have completed a screening. They've issued thousands, 200, rather fewer than 200 have completed a screening According to the mayor's office, there is no other backstop in the citation if the citation is uh, ignored. Mayor Wheeler said, speaking to the Oregonian, clearly this is not working as it was intended. Well, as part of his work, Dahlgren uh, meets with and interviews homeless people in Portland. He said he's often the first outreach worker they've talked to. He said many of the people he talks to would like to get help, but there aren't enough detox facilities in the city. I've actually never met a fentanyl addict that says, I love this. They'll admit it feels good. That's different than uh, than love, Dahlgren says. They say, I can't get off it. This is slowly killing me. I wish I had a place to go, and it simply doesn't exist. Those are quotes, by the way. The misery on the streets is impossible not to see. 
I personally see a body about once a week in downtown Portland, Dahlgren said. We could have never anticipated this, he said, of the fentanyl crisis that he believes has been supercharged in Oregon by Measure 110. This is why I'm like, we need to repeal this now. Well, last September, Portland attorney John D. Lorenzo filed a federal lawsuit on behalf of 10 disabled residents accusing the city of violating the Americans with Disabilities Act by failing to keep its sidewalks clear of debris and homeless camps. Well, as part of the settlement agreement earlier this year, the city vowed to prioritize removing campsites from sidewalks and to establish a system for reporting problematic camps. Well, D. Lorenzo believes that Oregon's generally laissez-faire stance toward illicit drug use and homeless camping combined with the Ninth Circuit uh, ruling that concluded it was unconstitutional to prosecute people for sleeping in public when they have no other shelter, have turned Oregon and Portland in particular into a destination for addicts and other troubled people. He said he's advocated uh, for point-in-time counters to ask the city's homeless where they're from, but he said they won't ask those questions because they know what the answers are. They want to blame everything on landlords and they want to say, well, we need rent control. Uh, most of these folks who are intense right now, who have severe drug problems and severe mental illness problems, can't pay any rent. It's not that the rents are too high. They can't um, exit uh, or exist in housing. By eliminating penalties for illicit drug use, Measure 10 took away the government's hammer to force people into treatment, whether they wanted to go or not. Under Measure 110, treatment service providers receiving public grants are prohibited from employing coercion or shame or mandating abstinence. People caught using illicit drugs used to have a choice, drug treatment or jail, DiLorenzo reminds us. Now he said your choice is drug treatment or just keep doing what you're doing. He believes that many of the harm reduction efforts promoted by the city and by advocates simply enable addicts. And he pointed specifically to a recent much criticized plan by the Multnomah County Health Department to start providing addicts with drug smoking supplies, including meth pipes, straws, tinfoil and copper scouring pads. Well, critics of Measure 110 acknowledge that drug decriminalization is just one of several issues that have played on one another to hollow out downtown Portland and worsen the state's overlapping homelessness and drug addiction crisis. The owner of Mother's Bistro and Bar in downtown Portland said her restaurant was so busy in 2019 that people couldn't even get in the front door. Over two decades, she'd grown the restaurant into a nearly $7 million business. Then a combination of factors conspired to cut Schroeder's business by more than half. COVID policies stripped Portland's downtown of its office workers. Homeless camps proliferated and the George Floyd riots in 2020 made the city seem even less safe. Driving away foot traffic, Measure 110 and the exploding fentanyl crisis is just the icing on the cake. Well, despite growing statewide angst about Measure 110's impact on Oregon's quality of life and recent negative coverage in mainstream outlets, like the Atlantic, Esquire, New York Times, and others, the state's Democratic leaders have been unwilling so far to make substantial changes. And while the legislature did approve a new law this year, increasing penalties for fentanyl possession, broader efforts to address Measure 110's failures went nowhere. State Representative Lily Morgan, a Republican from Grants Pass in Southern Oregon, introduced several bills this year addressing Measure 110, including proposals to overturn the measure, to send it back to voters, and to create a tiered system that would have imposed criminal penalties on people caught with drugs more than once. A former parole officer, the representative said 
Her preferred um, tiered approach was an attempt to honor the intent of the voters. But she said her bill, they were blocked by the Democrat leaders in the House Behavioral Health Committee, who had made promises to measure 110's backers. Promises, as I mentioned earlier, have yet to be met. Well, allowing addicts who are unable to advocate for themselves to rot on the sidewalks and overdose and kill themselves in public is the most uncompassionate thing we can do. In Clackamas, uh, Commissioner West and his colleagues hope that by charting a course and building a consensus opposed to Measure 110 through a federalist approach, they can spur statewide change. We are watching people throughout the metro area slowly commit suicide on our streets, he told his colleagues back in June. You pass a crazy policy like this and we have no infrastructure for recovery. We have no infrastructure to handle this. We have no way to actually induce people into treatment. We are allowing them to die. We'll continue to watch what's happening there, and hopefully that will spark some meaningful conversations and possibly change. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.